Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. 20 years from now, you'll be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than by the ones you did. So throw off the bow lines, sail away from the safe harbour, catch the trade winds in your sails, explore, dream, discover. Is a quote from Mark Twain, the father of American literature, that I thought was appropriate in describing our guest today. A person who has taken risks, left the safe harbour of his homeland, sailed with and at times against the trade winds in a career that has experienced unparalleled success. Our guest is Managing Director and a founder of Pacific Equity Partners, Tim Sims, who has played a major role in the shaping and the development of the Australian and New Zealand private equity industry. He's also served on a number of government committees and led national strategy projects and most recently was made a member of the Order of Australia for significant service to the community through philanthropic initiatives. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, Executive Search and Board Advisory Firm. In this special episode, Tim shares with us his fascinating story. From boarding school at the age of five, the learnings from the University of Oxford, and his formative years in management consultancy at LEK, and as Chairman and Managing Director of Bain & Company's Australasian and African Operations. We then explore the world of private equity, where Tim reveals to us the precepts of PE, myth versus reality, his approach to evaluating and solving business problems, creating permission to take risks, and the returns PE has achieved. Tim discusses some of the dealings he's had with several prominent business figures. He makes us think about the current corporate incentive schemes and draws our attention to how significant the board configuration is in determining company performance. Importantly, we cover Tim's deep passion and obligation to helping those who are disadvantaged in life and how he can transfer his skills from the world of private equity into helping those in need. So sit back and enjoy this highly topical, personal and wide-ranging conversation. Tim, where did it all begin? I suppose the, the place where our, our lives all begin is where we begin to be aware of ourselves and, and thinking. For me, I suppose that starts at a very young age. I went to boarding school when I was five. And uh, so I began to be aware of myself and of life right there. And then you, uh, you went to boarding school at five, but you obviously pursued university to the highest level. Yeah, so as I think about what the influences were there, there was an extraordinary sequence of teaching people. 
And as I think about the way in which my own interests evolved, they evolved around great teachers. So there's a lesson in there for all of us, which is the power of great teachers. I had a great teacher when I was uh, very young who was a historian and a philosopher. And he drove me to a university called Oxford. And he said to me, one day you could be here. And uh, you should think about being here. And uh, I was a bit sort of stunned and interested by that. He'd taken the whole day off. It was a long drive to take me to that place. Those are extraordinary people. Um, My next sort of major teaching influence was mathematics. I had an extraordinary maths teacher who, again, had something unusual about him in terms of the way he thought about life and what was possible. And the next great teacher for me was a German teacher and a French teacher who was a British lion. But I wanted to be taught by him. He was second-row British lion player. I wanted to be close to that influence, understand what that was, and so I developed an interest in languages. And so those teaching influences moved on. So when it came to university, the aspiration for people from small schools in, in backwards areas of England was to go to an Oxford university, Yes, uh, if you could. And uh, I was fortunate to pass the exam that made that possible. And I went to read um, uh, history. And you say, why is that? And that's a very interesting thing for an Australian sort of history. What kind of grade point average is that or UAI? Yeah. Uh, in, in the English system, the less applied the topic, the more sought after it is. And the implicit truth is learning to think in the abstract is really important. And so uh, I remember talking to my grandfather, what should I read at Oxford? Yeah. And he said, well, you'll always read English, read history. And so that became the choice for me. So I went to Oxford to read history. And, and that was really a, a result of a long series of great teachers who sort of revolved me through the different disciplines uh, through the school period. Was an area of focus in history that you specialised in? The Oxford history syllabus is, uh, as I remember, is 10 papers. Each one is 100 years of history. Mm-hmm. And so you get pretty much the full gamut. Right. My strongest area were the early areas where there were less facts. Uh, if you go back far enough, all we know is a coin and a piece of pottery. Yeah, right. And if you need to write four essays about that period of English history, uh, it gets to be really interesting. So how did that curiosity lead to the world of management consultancy? Well, I I love the study. The the unique thing about the Oxford University system is you you take a small exam at the beginning to see if you're qualified to be there. And in in history's case, and again, maybe interesting to Australian listeners, Mm. you need to prove competence in two languages in order to study history because you'll be researching in languages. And so it's a pretty broad sort of proposition. And, uh, and I enjoyed that greatly. But you don't take any more exams after your first few weeks for another three years. And then you take all of your exams in a single week where in history schools you sit three hours in the morning and three hours in the afternoon, so two papers, written papers a day for five days. Right. So there are your ten papers. So there's no evaluation, and then there's a one-week super, um, super special exam experience. So again, that's a unique and unusual culture. There's no evaluation Throughout on the, the way through. Wow. So you literally don't know until you arrive at the exam schools and you come out the other side if you've been a great student or, or not a great student, but you enjoy the experience and develop that. So in the midst of that, uh, again... An opportunity. I was doing a lot of rowing and, and, and playing rugby and, and reading a little bit of history. Um, and in the midst of that, there came an opportunity to apply for several different scholarships. There was one that, that took us, uh, took those who were fortunate to Japan. Uh, 
Uh, the linguistic experience was interesting to me. I, I was challenged by the idea of learning Japanese. At the time, we're going back now to the mid-70s, mm. uh, Japan was an extraordinary economic wonder and mystery. And so I went to Japan and spent some time there on a scholarship with Mitsui, General Trading Corporation, thinking about whether or not Japan was a place where I could go and work and, and be uniquely engaged. Another opportunity came up with a thing called the Kennedy Scholarship uh, at Harvard. It's a very similar thing to the Rhodes Scholarship in reverse. So it's a scholarship program that takes British graduates and undergraduates offshore, and in this case takes them to Harvard. And so I was fortunate to, to interview for that and, and receive that opportunity to go to Harvard straight out of Oxford. So if you think about the age thing, mm. um, in the British system you can go to university very young. That's right. Um, there's no constraint on age. And so um, high-achieving students would start Oxford at the age of 17 or 18. In my case, I think 17. And then uh, you could finish your bachelor's degree, which in due course matures to a master's degree in three years. So you're done with that process at the age of 20. Yeah. And so I was fortunate to be able to go through then to, to Harvard and, um, and do the program there. I'd already met my, my wife. By then, I was, um, I'd met her very young. That's another whole story. <laughs> right. Uh, and I was really keen to return to London and be in London as soon as possible. So I was fortunate to find a way of finishing my Harvard degree in a year yep. and then return to, to the UK. What takes you into business? Yeah. Well, it was happenstance. And it, this should be a word of encouragement for anybody who's thinking about the need to plan careers and, and where to go. For me, it was how could I get to London with no money? on the boat race weekend to see Oxford and Cambridge race. I was deeply invested in that sport. I'd been rowing with the Harvard crew at the time and I wanted to go back and see a great friend row. I didn't have the funds. And there was a new industry that was just becoming relevant in Europe called management consulting. And they were willing to take people with, um, with particular types of resume to London to interview them sight unseen. And that was my break. So I got to see the boat race that year, and I interviewed with a number of firms that um, are now household names uh, in Europe. So that's how it happened. Young, very young, you starting your career in the world of management consulting. Hmm. And management consulting requires that you engage with the decision makers in corporates and in banks and influence and get outcomes. Where did the belief come from? So you're a, you're a master of searching <laughs> questions, Greg. That is the right question, right? So what is a 21-year-old in Europe doing yeah. uh, working for American Management Consulting? Well, the, the irony of it is enormously intriguing, at least to me, which is you end up having to be in every senior meeting because you need to translate what's happening. So you're working with very capable, very intelligent, very experienced people, yep. but they need you in the meeting to talk to the German management or the French management on the day. Right. So I had this sort of golden experience of flying all around Europe, sometimes two different languages on the same day, being that person. Uh, so presenting in Paris, um, that afternoon presenting in Munich, managing a discussion. What you, what you get out of that is an extraordinary ringside view as to what's really happening in the process of influence and consulting and information yeah. and change. And uh, if you're young enough and foolish enough and reckless enough, and you do that for a few years, in my case, um, a little, little under four years, mm -hmm. you begin to think 
these, and you know, please excuse this thought because I was very young, mm-hmm. um, but you begin to think these guys who are with me who are speaking an unusual type of English who need me to translate, they're slowing the meeting down. And I think I know what the technical things are that they're doing because I've been doing them for 20 hours a day for four years. I think I understand what that is. So maybe there's a way of doing this without them. And that was the beginning of a firm called the LEK Partnership, which started in a, in a little room over a shirt shop in German Street in London. As I like to say now, it became the world's largest small consulting firm with 26 offices worldwide. So what was the plan? The naive plan, because all plans are naive when you start. The naive plan was to, to go to this chief executive person who I'd come to understand was very lonely. Uh, everybody else wanted their job. They took responsibility ultimately in the market space and face for everything that happened. Yeah. And they were perceived to be wise and in control. And they had to promulgate an idea or a plan. And they had to deliver that plan. And they were lonely. And what they needed was they needed um, people who understood that. And they needed people who focused on the things that really mattered to them, which in most cases were share price performance. And they needed people who were totally loyal to them, who were technically competent, who would always be open and honest with them, have integrity. However hard it was, whatever, however hard the message was, it needed to be delivered. Mr. Chief Executive, the way you talk to your employees is hopeless. You know, you're shutting down all opportunity and all things. So with limited wisdom at the age of 25, yeah, I'd at least come to see that. And so the, the, the model or the program that we developed was kind of a romantic extreme. It was, we're going to take it away from technical solution only. We're going to become the companion of an individual chief executive officer. And we're going to make that chief executive officer deeply successful. Our presence will be confidential. We'll have no profile. All of the benefit for that delivery will go to them. And by definition, as we found out, we can only work for one company in an industry. Right. Because if you put that kind of commitment and you need that kind of transparency from the other side, it's inconceivable that you could ever work for. So we couldn't be a vertical player. We couldn't be, we work for all the banks work for all distribution companies. So having that generic competence just didn't work in our business. We had to be relationship guys delivering share price. And then an amazing thing happened, which sort of sheds a light on much of what happened subsequently. And the amazing thing was that we tracked the one thing that seemed to matter. We couldn't track the relationship quality, but we could track share price. We could track the extent to which the share price was moving while we were in that relationship. So we said, we need to be objective about this. We need to get somebody from the outside to say, is this a real relationship that you're really doing work on? Or are you you just coasting on the back of somebody else's good? No, it's a real relationship. Let's get in. In this case, it was one of the big accounting firms that we asked to help us and to construct an index. And this index was frightening when you look back because it compounded at 42% per annum total shareholder return. And in the end... That, that index, if you think about it, couldn't include competitors and actually didn't include the mineral resource industry because commodity prices there were such a powerful predeterminant and I never really understood how to compete with that. Um, but in the end, for example, the practice in Australia accounted for 16% of total market cap in Australia, growing at 42% per annum. 
So it was an extraordinary metric and, and it, it sheds a deep insight into what really makes businesses perform. And we stumbled on it, you know, in the sort of hubris of youth um, in multiple language systems in a broken little property in German Street. We began to do something which was extraordinary. And this is agnostic in the sense across all industries, Tim? Yes. It varies. Of course, the application varies. You know, the challenge of reducing rewind wastage in a packaging facility is different from the challenge of, of getting a better hit rate out of sales forces. Yes. So the application is different, but the philosophy is absolutely the same. So you, you're building that rapport, you're getting the runs on the board, you're building the brand. Yeah. How long were you with LEK and, and why did you ultimately then make the move? Well, it's still shades of the old Japan uh, story. Um, we, we never lost sight of the fact that Asia Pacific was the great and growing and interesting economic space. Okay. And uh, so we needed to go to the Asia Pacific. And uh, I had a mother who was from New Zealand. Sadly, she was an orphan from New Zealand. Right. And so there'd never been a strong family wish to locate or be there. But I was intrigued by what might be here. And I'd seen um, good rugby players and good cricket players coming from this part of the world. That was even more intriguing. <laughs> and, so, um, and so when it came time, uh, following the, the idea that we should be sending, uh, don't misunderstand this comment, but we should be sending real resources to a new market, yep. um, I, uh, I came to Australia. And, you know, I look back in amusement now, we're not sitting far from the airport as we speak. Yep. But flying into Sydney, Sydney was a mystery. I didn't know how to find my way into the city. I didn't know what I was going to find when I arrived in the city. And my first client interactions were calling people and saying, I've worked in the snack food industry. Can I come and show you my portfolio? Because obviously snack food wasn't competing with UK snack food. I've worked in the banking industry. Can I come and show you my portfolio? And then this unusual speech, um, and I can remember it now, and I'll mention his name because I still revere him as a businessman, John Ballard, who was running the snack food operations at Amatel. And we were sitting there at four o'clock in the afternoon with John Ballard, and I said, John, if you sign with me, you need to understand that my expectation is I'll be working for you for life. Um, you know, I'll be, I'll be in the background, I'll be sporting, but, but that's what I'm aspiring to. So we should not take this conversation further. I think it was a bit punch drunk. It was afternoon. I was tired. And he said to me, which was shocking to any English person, given, given how restricted we are in our social interactions. Yeah. He said, uh, well, in that case, you better come to my house for dinner tonight. And that was the beginning of an extraordinary relationship. Uh, and there were many more like it. And it turns out in that particular industry, if your stock in trade is excellent results, then it pays to be less publicly known because then you're a quiet um, and powerful piece of knowledge for a subset of people who need that. Ultimately, Tim, do all the CEOs from the UK and Japan, South Africa, Australia all share the same fears? Yes. I mean, they, they, have, different, they have different expectations and different cultural norms in which they operate. And I've done a lot of work in uh, most of those markets that you've talked about, in yeah. particular in South Africa for different reasons. Yeah. And uh, so there's, there's a different cultural permission in the way that people behave, but the problems they're solving are quite similar. For example, in South Africa, you've got a very strong Dutch reformed church influence. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me very much of working in Northern Europe and Scandinavia, where I've worked a lot. People are very direct 
it's okay to be direct, and in fact, it's frowned on if you're not. Yeah, right. Um, so there's a there's there's a beauty to doing business in those environments because people are polite and controlled, but you always know exactly where you where you stand. But there are unique challenges in Africa. We had the privilege of working there for a very large supermarket chain as one of our clients. And perhaps a better example, we worked for one of the big banks in South Africa. And literally, I was in a board meeting at this particular bank's headquarters when their largest central branch in the downtown area of Johannesburg was subject to a, uh, an armed raid. Right. And we had to stop a board meeting and we had to work out how we were going to deal with the fact that there were five or six armed gunmen inside the bank holding the bank customers hostage. It was almost, if it hadn't been such a serious situation, mm. sort of a comic aside was that things had gotten so bad at that stage in South Africa that my understanding was you couldn't insure bank deposits. So another piece of information that we urgently needed was how much money is in the bank? Yeah. Because if these guys do steal it, it's going to affect next year's results. So different cultural environments have different different permissions and different unique problems they're solving, but always around the same central business question, which is how do we deliver our mission and empower our people to behave in excellent ways to produce an outcome? So you're building LEK in Australia. Hmm. What do you look for in a consult when you, when you bring them on? Uh, it's interesting. I, my sense of that was much more acute when I was there. Mm. And I remember I was, in, I was one of those guys who were thinking, well, someone needs to write a book about this. Mm. You know, what is a good consultant and what isn't? And, and as so often happens, you never get to write the book. But my sort of vague, vague memory of it is, um, first of all, what's really interesting is when you're assessing a consultant, mm. what you see is so much more than what a consultant thinks you see. You're looking at a goldfish in a bowl. And the things that consultants or I as a consultant thought were quite opaque to the client are totally apparent. It's in the inflection in the voice. It's in the eye contact. It's in the tremor in the hand when claims are made. And so that's the first sort of interesting piece of human evidence, which is um, consultants are much more open to assessment than they might themselves understand. When you've got somebody starkly in front of you and you're interviewing them, yes, and you'll know this from yeah, your trade, sure. Greg, you're a master of your trade, um, a lot of what you do, and that's one of the reasons you're uniquely competent in what you do, yeah. is that you have that skill. You look past the cladding and you look for the individual that sits behind that. So the first thing in consulting is look for a real person because a lot of things flow from that, right? Will he tell me the truth or she tell me the truth? Yeah. Um, will the analysis be good? Uh, is this a show about that person and their next piece of work? Or is this a completely selfless show about how I'm going to succeed? Is this person going to act in my interest? And that's a large ethical and judgmental question. And it turns out, and if you press the flesh more, it is a fundamental question in all business issues. What is the quality of the person I'm dealing with? By quality, I mean, what is their agenda? How able are they commit to the greater game? Yep versus the individual uh, moment. And we're all weak, right? We all want affirmation. We all want to be um, somehow associated with success. But, but it's a poison if it's, uh, if it's unhealthily administered. So that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. Second thing is look for jargon. Uh, Too much of it? Yeah. Because, um, again, it's linked to the first issue, but it's not the same. Uh, there are people with techniques and technologies that they want to do you for and do you with. They see you as 
the Model T Ford that they've just dealt with. They're great at revamping the engine of a Model T Ford. And you'll get the same responses as they did up the street to the other Model T Ford because they've grown to a point where they're now vertically focused. And so they now have a specialism. So the guy you've got is of a kind that wants to work in a deep specialty. And there's some issues around that, good and bad. Mm -hmm. And he wants to do his thing on you. And so again, there's an enormous danger and jargon is a, and, and technical words are a, a surefire front lead of that because people who deal in truth don't garnish that with fancy words. They say what they mean and they mean what they say. Mm-hmm. And the word thing tells you immediately that people are trying to take it to a place where you don't really know what they mean and what they think and where they're insecure about what it is that they're doing and saying. So they're going to rely on technology or technical merit. So those are the two, those are two things. The, thir- the third thing, of course, is if you're using a consultant, it's enormously dangerous. Enormously dangerous because you're somewhat in control of your business. At least you're supposed to be and technically you look as if you are. And you're getting paid for it. And you're getting paid for it. And now you're going to invite somebody right. and invest in them an authority yeah. to comment on the way you do business. You may not have met them before, you've had some ability to assess them, but their report will be aired in front of your board, in front of whoever it is that they they get a chance to talk to. So again, since you're taking that risk, do you have a healthy attitude and understanding of their degree of confidentiality? Because if they're there as consultants to do a great consulting thing and build their proposition, mm. you could well be a victim of that. Um, there's a, Again, as in all things in life, there's a healthy balance. Would you be confidential, but would you not withhold the truth? And so, again, there's a, there's a very dangerous thing that you're doing, and you become aware of it as, you, as a consulting assignment gets closer. One of the dangers of that is there's a special breed of consulting which seeks to find out what you want to hear. Mm. We used to call it project consulting. Yeah, right. Um, I want to repurpose this factory. I'm going to have to reduce the number of people by 30%. I want permission to do that and a brand name. And so I'm going to put out an RFP that asks for that kind of support. It's a one-off. The organization will hate you after you've done it as a consulting firm. The CEO won't want to see you again because you bring a, an odor and an aura that's not helpful. Yeah, very true. Um, but you live from project consulting, project consulting. And, and if, if that's the, and it's not true of all project consultants, there are highly capable technical consultants, not jargon people, but mm-hmm. people with technical skills who solve problems. Nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But if, if you've got people who are serial project dwellers, then their standard of integrity and their standard of true problem solving is entirely compromised by their perception of what you want. And that's extremely dangerous as well. Will they push back? I can think of a famous CEO whom I love, um, who when I first met with asked me what I knew, I won't tell you the name of this guy, (laughs) asked me what I knew about his industry. Now I had worked deeply in his industry in other countries and I understood his business quite well from the outside. But the right answer was, I don't know as much about your business as you do, but you're too old and you're too rude and you're too abrupt to do what you want to do with this business. And there was a pause 
and this is a this is an alpha dog i think we're allowed to call it yep. and his face went red and he became angry and he told me that nobody else in his business career had ever spoken to him like that and he didn't choose to be in my presence and enjoy that privilege again and he left 12 minutes later he called i know it was 12 minutes because i made that walk uh, every couple of days for the next four years called me from his office and he started again nobody has ever spoken to me like that in my business career before i think it's good for me i need that kind of pushback can you get over here it'll take you 12 minutes and so i think again um and so th- there's an interesting little subtitle to that by the way which is which is intriguing which is if you want to breed a firm of people who are capable of delivering high integrity advice yes they need to have a personal net worth which means they can afford to lose the job <laughs> Very true. and so literally we used to distort the bonus system in those days to get young partners up to a level of personal net worth paid off mortgage and other things right where they could afford to lose the job because if you can't afford to lose the job you can't afford in some circumstances to tell the vital truth that needs to be told tim you did move from lek yeah it was um it was an interesting time and you, you, when you've started a firm i helped to start a firm and you know uh, clearly there were a number of powerful people involved terrific people people i still have great fondness for but when you've done that there's something you've got something invested in it that's very personal mm. and so it takes takes quite a a big issue to cause you to turn your back on that. And for me, it was the structure of partnership at the time. I know that the partnership has been changed and and uh, I continue to be enormously proud of my heritage with LEK, which is a great global firm. But at the time we were working through the change that went from being uh, a little firm dominated by founders to a wider currency firm that was able to, to raise future generations of partners. Right. And sadly, I was at the inflection point there. And I had strong views about how we should structure partnership. And I couldn't persuade my partners to structure partnership that way. And strangely, probably, um, my response to that challenge actually helped to solve the problem in the end. But I resigned. You resigned. And it was a very painful time. I didn't know what I was going to do. I wasn't going to compete with the firm that I'd helped to start. Mm. I uh, only knew how to be consultant. My French and German was getting pretty rusty by then. So I couldn't just go out and translate for people and do that. I was living in Australia and I couldn't work in any geography where I'd worked before within previous years. Right. Um, so that was, a, that was a scary time. I had a mortgage. I had two young kids. I had a wonderful wife. But um, that was a difficult time to, uh, to do what I felt was right and then to face the full consequences of that, which really only unfolded over the coming days. Because they were they were not happy, mm. and it got worse. Because um, again, in, in innocence, a significant number of people came to find me, who had been working with me, and said, "We don't know what you're doing, but we're coming." And so it wasn't it wasn't just me feeding my family. It was it was fourteen other families. There was a moment during that time uh, when my wife went to the cash machine, ATM machine, and uh, she was trying to get money for groceries. And the, the cash machine spat out an enormous negative balance on our current account. And that was because the payroll 
had hit our account. And she had a friend sitting next Aww. to her, standing next to her, who saw the chit and heard the, heard the choir of anguish from my wife. These were not, not happy times. I had um, lived in, as a teenager, I'd, I'd lived in many different third world countries. But one of those that I had lived in in the latter part of my childhood uh, days was, was Botswana. So Southern Africa was familiar. Um, it needed to be English speaking because if I could make a bridgehead, I needed to take other people in with me. And so we did a thing that I'd learned about in history, uh, which wasn't the proudest moment in British history, but we pursued gunboat diplomacy, yep. which is I got on a plane with what, what I had and went with my portfolio to find clients in Africa. And it was an interesting time to be going in because... Had you done much work there previously, Tim? I'd never worked in Africa before. So you're, you're so this is what history is teaching. You're taking some pretty bold moves here. Yeah. I had one great thing going for me. There was a guy um, who worked with the special forces in Africa. Right. I knew that because he, um, he had cufflinks which said, who dares wins when I met him. <laughs> and uh, I'd helped him establish a business in Australia. Yeah. So I called Lewis who's still a close friend. I said, Lewis, I'm in trouble. I need help. Uh, I need to come to Africa and I need to meet the business person in Africa who's least likely to use consultants, who's most respected for his business achievements. And he said, that's easy and gave me a name. I think I can get an interview with that person. Now, these were times, remember, when nobody was going into Africa. That's right. Uh, there'd been shootings at the ANC headquarters in Johannesburg. People were leaving. So you could get an interview if you're coming from somewhere else with an, with an important person that in normal circumstances you might not. And just going back on this, Tim, this is because you could not practice your trade in Australia based on... Your... Not until I had an agreement yes. with a set of pretty angry and hurt guys. Right. So that was not going to be coming too quickly. No. Okay. Legitimately angry and hurt yep. guys. And so, uh, so that's what I did. I went to Africa. That meeting, that first meeting was... Very successful. If you've got room for a little anecdote, yep. there are lives full of fun anecdotes. Now, this was an extremely successful business person. And as I frantically searched through his annual report, I could see symptoms of a business that was beginning to lose momentum. And I could see behaviors that between the balance sheet and the P&L that showed the stress that that was causing. And so when I went to see the person, I explained what I did and what my track record was. I think he was a little shocked at how junior I looked. Um, but, I, but I said to that person, this is the business problem that you have and I'm here to solve it and I can solve it. And while he was thinking about that, he got up and went to a small closet next to the main office, which was a toilet. And so when he came back, I said to him, in addition, to the strategy insight that I have for you. I want you to go and get checked for prostate cancer. Now, it's a big call. This is your first meeting. Yeah. It's and a, you desperately need to win work. Yeah. And your wife's not going to be talking to you if you don't come back with yeah. something. And, and But it was a big call, but it was an obvious call, right? He met an international visitor in his own office. We'd been there for less than 12 minutes, and he needed to go to the bathroom. Well, it turned out I was right. And so that became a foundational relationship in South Africa, extraordinary relationship, which, which led to extraordinary results and tremendous, tremendous outcomes. So you get lucky sometimes. And, uh, and we started the African practice that day. 
And that then became, was that then lead on to the next part of the journey, which was with yeah. Bane? So um, meanwhile, back at the ranch, back in Sydney, uh, I had I had a problem. You know, I was I was in handcuffs, essentially corporate handcuffs, yep. and should rightly so. It was inappropriate that I I work, and we needed to find a settlement with Lek. I had long standing contacts with Bain, and Bain reached out to me and said, "You're in obviously in a lot of trouble." Mm. A particular guy who was running Bain at the time, who was an amazing guy. Um, we would be very interested if you resolve that trouble and when you resolve that trouble and you're coming to take responsibility for the uh, the outposts in the region that we have. So that gave me a place or a goal to go towards and gave us momentum in the solving of the LEK problem, which ultimately was a financial question. It was of the net worth that I built in the company, how much reasonably could I take with me and how much did I need to leave behind mm-hmm. in return for and ability to practice my trade. Okay. So that deal was struck. Yep. And in due course, I went to run Bain's operations in the region. And that was another chapter. Successful chapter. And then the next chapter after Bain is the world of private equity. Yeah, so Bain was an extraordinary exciting time. Again, Bain is an amazing company. Mm-hmm. Uh, really had the privilege of working with, with the best of the best on this journey. Um, what we were able to do with that company, again, was to to take, you know, I should say, the chief executive of Bain & Company, who's still a good friend and, and long retired, said to me um, once, uh, Tim, you guys are scary. You're like white kids stolen away by the Apaches. There was a, there was a, I hope that's not a racist comment no, no, given no. what's going on in, in America right now. But it was an innocent comment. It was a beautiful picture of uh, of people from civilization who were deeply commercial. What mattered to us was getting the commercial answer right. We were war dogs. We were trained, we were calm, we didn't bite our owners, but we were war dogs. And what mattered to us was, was the, the, the tough business of getting business right. And so it was terribly exciting then to take on a franchise with a global balance sheet and begin to build that build that franchise up. And we made some innovations and did some things which led to an amazing practice here in very short order in Australia. Just on that, Tim, was Bain in existence in this part of the world at it, the time or it was, was it underperforming? It was. It had it had an office here. Right. And uh, that, so they had established a bridgehead and it needed, um, or it benefited from the infusion of white kids stolen away by the Apaches. Okay. The war dogs turned up. <laughs> so we had a great great thing. It, it worked really well and it became a, a large and very successful practice. So what, what happens next is I'm, I'm in a meeting in South Africa. We've been working for a company that was number four in its industry when we started. It's now number one. And it's about to take over the number one company in an adjacent industry and create financial history. And the merger can be done or the acquisition can be done but it needs very, very careful management and very careful politics as we fold those cards together. And my mind was wandering. There was a sense of, I've been in this meeting before. I know what that guy over there is going to say. I'm not sure. I hope we get this deal done by tonight because I'm missing my kids. And that was a sort of amazing moment of truth for me, which is, you're dangerous if you're if you're if you're the person or one of the people that's that's there 
to see it through and to be uncompromising to get right and your mind is wandering you can you can fake it to the audience yeah exactly right. but from that moment onwards you're dangerous i did a lot of rowing yep. when i was a teenager and and if you've it hasn't happened to me thank god yep. it almost did and i i remember the moment but if there's ever a moment when you you break in a rowing race you're never really you're never really sure you've seen that demon off and it's the same thing in in uh, acquisitions, mergers, consulting. Yeah. If your mind's beginning to wander and you're not, your heart isn't in it, then it's time to think again. Uh, I went to Boston to talk with the head of banking oh. company of the time. Yeah. And I said, look, I've got, got a confession to make. You know, I've got to this place. And I'm sure I can fake it for a while. And, uh, but I think I'm dangerous. I think I've got to a point of inflection. And so we worked out, we talked about a lot of different things, changes of roles, and many of which involved massive travel and global global things. Uh, Australia had become too precious to me by that point. And so um, what I did was I, I crossed the road, actually not crossed the road, probably went up in the lift, as I think about it, to another floor, where there's a man who had been a, a good friend and something of a mentor right from the beginning, whose name was Mitt Romney. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I asked Mitt about his transition from consulting to private equity. And he was really accommodating. He was accommodating the point where he offered to help us raise our first fund, which is an amazing thing in retrospect, because he had this pristine brand. He had extraordinary clients um, in the investment business, had an extraordinary track record. And he was going to, in his greatness and in his insight and his judgment, he was going to run the risk of selling that brand by signing up with some funny little guy out of Australia uh, who he'd been aware of for the last 20 years or so. But, um, but he took that judgment call. And so he helped us raise the fund on the phone. As I remember, it took, and memories can be very optimistic, but I, I think it's true to say it took an hour and a half to raise our first fund on Mitt Romney's phone. It had a lot more to do with Mitt Romney than with me. I stared at his Persian carpet and hoped that the moment wouldn't pass before the fund was raised. So this Mitt is, raised our first fund. So this is the beginning of PEP. Yeah. And it was important because in Australia at the time, there weren't really, there wasn't really an established cadre of private equity firms. Yep. So what, what year were we talking? Uh, 1998. Okay. And had you been thinking about this in the back of your mind? This is where I want to... It's a good question. You know, it's, um, it's one of those things, the, the overnight decision mm. that wasn't. Um, Bain had had a very strong tradition of involvement with and support in private equity. Yes. The precepts of private equity are very close to the best of consulting. And so there was always this sense of uh, our elite forces can be and sometimes are arrayed in a private equity situation. And some of our elite forces actually work in an enterprise called Bain Capital, run by Mitt Romney That's and right. his colleagues, yep. which was we used to say, eat your own cooking, where you are your own client, where you're putting the technology to work. And what's essentially happened is you've changed the pricing mechanism from time and materials, which is usually the consulting, sometimes with a kicker for success, although that's always a dangerous component, depending on your objective, mm -hmm. time and materials, yeah. and you'd move that to capital value. Yeah, okay. 
And, and private equity is much maligned and misunderstood, but it's, it's a really interesting formula. Um, private equity says, we're going to buy a business and pay conceptually more for it on the night we pay for it than anybody else thinks it's worth. In a simple auction model, you have to believe that. Um, we're then going to take that business and we're going to create 20% net return for you. You won't pay us anything significant until we exceed 8%. If you think about 8%, that's pretty close to the top performing funds in Australia in conventional investment. That's right. We've just topped that a little bit in a market that's grown year to date in the equity markets by 18%. Our blended average returns for super funds for the best are slightly north of 8%. Okay. So until you're north of 8%, you've paid a salary. In fact, people are really, really keen to make sure that the the, uh, the fees to run the business are um, are finely tuned around what it takes to pay salaries. Right. And naturally, improperly, have thought through that equation. So the super profits that you read about in private equity when you exceed a normal investment return. Um, and so there is a whole industry out there that makes the claim that it will do that. Mm. And in fact, the industry in Australia has been substantially more successful than any other geographic subset of private equity. So the level of returns across the full spectrum in Australia for all players is four points higher than it is for an average private equity market. And the dispersion of returns is less. Is that got anything to do with competition at all, Tim, in the sense of, I look at the PE market in the US? Um, um, yes, there is an element to that. So the most obvious element is when capital is in oversupply. Yeah. So one of the blessings of the Australian market is that the local capital has often been reluctant to support private equity for a whole set of other reasons, okay. with the result that oversupply of capital in Australia, particularly in the segmented structure of the market we're in, has been sensibly handled. You can imagine the nightmare scenario, which is if there's four times more capital seeking deals than there are deals, then the lowest common denominator wins, which yep. is the most desperate, least skilled, least appropriate buyer will buy. The easiest thing to do in private equity is to buy. Mm -hmm. Hardest thing to do in private equity is having bought, deliver a consistent track record. And so, for example, in our case, we're blessed with, excited by, um, uh, able to tell um, those that do the analysis that we've seen, for example, at the gross return level, which is the returns that you get on portfolio companies that you're farming, 45% gross return per annum over the last 10 years with zero loss ratio. So there have been no businesses where money's been lost in 10 years and the returns on the businesses we have, which are very many and across billions of dollars over the 10 years, are 45% per annum. What that means at the gross return level is that if you had access to those gross returns, your superannuation would double every two years. That's right. Under the current average return um, assumptions after fees, it looks like more every 25 to 50 years. Okay. Now, that's not a speech to say put all your capital into private equity, yep. but it, is, it raises a really interesting question, which I'm sure you're going to ask me in a minute, which yeah. is what is that magic? Because is it alchemy? Is there something bad going on? Is there a bad trick here? That's what I'm going to ask you. You pay too much for the business or yep. more than anybody thinks it's worth. Yep. You're on the hook to supply consistent returns that are at least above 8%, yep. targeted 20 Yep. Is there a bad trick in here? Well, why aren't the others getting it, Tim? Yeah. Well, um, 
it, it's a really interesting question. Um, well, that's what you play with every day, don't you? Yeah. you? You must have. Well, I guess that maybe before we get to the alchemy is what do you look for, Tim? When you you know obviously you've got lots of choices and doing reviews yeah. of of the market all day long. What are the sort of the telltale signs or mm. key points? Is it is it is it the executive team? Is it the board? Is it the the share price? Is it all of the above? What are the big things you guys really hone in on? Yeah. Well, again, there's a little, little anecdote here. Being an ex-consultant or an ex-con, I think, which makes me a good Australian. Um, I, uh, I used to search for companies to buy. Yeah, okay. And so if you and I were doing that, uh, we'd start out by searching for companies that were cheap. Let's buy cheap companies. Pretty soon you realize that cheap companies are cheap for a reason. They're not strong in their positions. They're not well operated. They can be good companies, but they may not be for sale. So you've got cheap companies that aren't for sale. So you've spent hours yeah, right. establishing the world's definitive list of cheap companies not for sale. You're not sure if that's valuable or not. Mm. So you get really smart and you make a list of expensive companies. So you go through, now you've got a list of expensive companies that are not for sale. And so you realize that you're just being a uh, consultant okay. in the worst kind. You're just doing analysis and you're paralyzed by that and it's not leading anywhere. So it turns out the most important attribute of a company First and most important one is it is for sale. It can be bought. Now, some companies may not be for sale, but can become for sale at the yeah. right price. Yeah, right. But if it's not in that zone, it's not a starter. The second question is, is it a strong business for reasons that we're going to explore in a minute? Because as it turns out, well, I'd love the answer to your question be, well, we're really smart. We're very good businessmen. We, we generate amazing returns that nobody else can do because we're, we're better. That's not true. It's not true. Uh, the the answer to your question is, we're solving a business problem that is embedded in conventional business structures. And this is where, from your point of view, Greg, and I know you're an expert in this space, yep. it gets really interesting. It does. So what is, what is the endemic sickness that lies at the heart of all conventional businesses? And to, to explain it simply, it starts with a very simple paradox, which makes sense when you hear it, which is, or what doesn't make sense when you hear it, it makes sense when you reflect on it, which is, if you're paid a bonus, the best thing to do to minimize risk and maximize your personal returns is to manage expectations. Now, I need a precondition to make that really work, which is I need a board structure and an observation and a supervision structure that's sufficiently uninformed about the business that I can really manage expectations. And then it becomes very powerful and very tempting I've got a board that doesn't really understand the business, although they're all good people, so they don't understand how to make widgets in West Australia. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's not their fault, it's just, it's just the, the truth. Mm -hmm. And I'm paid a bonus for making widgets in West Australia. And I'm coming to you with a thing called a budget, which is where all the action is, right? That's what we're gonna decide what we're gonna do. That's right. So I've got a budget for you. Now you're paid a bonus. And you're very smart. And Greg, I know you're very smart. So what are you going to do? You're good, Tim. Let, let's, be, let's be hypothetical for a minute because the answer you're going to give, I think you're going to give, is, um, is not you. But this hypothetical manager who's paid to make widgets in West Australia, who's got a board who don't really understand the business and can't get to understand the business because you control what they know about it. What are you going to do with your budget? I'll give you three choices. You can propose a decline in profits. Mm. they might get angry with you and say, we don't understand the business, but we're being gypped here. Yep. 
you could propose a future directory of the business that looks like GDP plus a bit, and you could explain why that's a really difficult thing to achieve. Or you could propose that you're going to double the profits in the business over the next two years. You're that a really sounds, smart manager. That sounds appealing. Which of those, you're a smart manager who's paid a bonus. Now let's go down the path, perhaps mm. I'll let you off the hook. And in which way are you going to incentivize me to? Li- listeners may think mm. you're answering for yourself, which you won't be. But the, 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 high, the high end one is, okay, I'm going to double profits. Mm. And the board doesn't really understand the business very well. And they don't understand what I'm telling them about the business. I'm telling them this business is capable of doing twice the profits that it's currently doing that I did for you last year. I can double them. Really? You can double them? Yeah. Well, then we need to set bonus targets that are much tougher. Are you sure you can do that? Well, no, there's risk in it. Well, if I promise that and I don't deliver it, you're going to have mercy on me? Well, no, not really. Because we're going to tell the market that we're going to double profits. And if you... If you fail, mm. the buck's got to stop somewhere. You made that profit. You made that promise and you didn't deliver. And so what we do, I mean, we don't need to explore all the scenarios. You can see where I'm going with this. Mm. What you do is you propose GDP plus. Okay. And a really fascinating attribute of our business is the average profit growth in the businesses that we bought over the last 21 plus years is 3%. What's GDP growth over the last 28 years in Australia? 3%. So it would seem that most businesses are coming to a place where they promise GDP growth. It's probably circular. It's probably true that GDP growth is a function. It is true. GDP growth is a function to a large extent. It's a complicated um, numerator. But to a large extent, GDP growth is the compound of the aggregate of corporate growth measured at all levels. We put in some for hospitals and governments and other things. But broadly speaking, that's what GDP growth is. Mm -hmm. So bonus systems, paying people bonuses, determines the rate of growth of GDP and the rate of growth of companies. Right. Now there's an arbitrage. Remember I studied history. I, I like metaphor. Let me give you a metaphor. If you go to the great art galleries of Europe and you look in the statues area, I'm thinking of the Louvre and others, you'll find half-hewn statues. You'll find rough stone with beautiful polished unique, amazing figures emerging from them. So the metaphor that I take is, if you could circumvent that bonus system, if you could find a way of coming up with a real plan that will double profits, and a way of incenting people to do that, the same business, which is currently trapped in unhewn stone, will rise as a beautiful thing. And, and that's the metaphor. And so what we're doing is we're releasing from unhewn stone Yes. The full potential. Now, it has to be a business with strong potential, but it's a business that's now released from the bonds of the current supervision model. I can wax lyrical on the current supervision. It's full of very capable people acting according to the incentive structures that they know. Mm. Management, board, since 2003-2004, the HIH review. Yes. We've had a strong bias to have non-executive directors in businesses. Yes. Now, they're fantastic people supremely intelligent. If you do the statistic, statistical analysis, you'll find 30% of the performance of a company depends on the configuration of its board. So they're influential, but by and large, they're not incented with the performance of the company to take risk to grow, quite different from the US and other places. And by and large, they shouldn't and don't have a background in the industry. So you've got terrific people recruited to in an industry that they don't know mm-hmm. with no incentive to take risk. 
And supervising them is a massive investment and superannuation system that's targeting 2.5% incremental return over inflation and doesn't want surprises either. And so all of those people are good people. Mm -hmm. All of those people are intelligent, capable people. All of those people are having to play the music according to the score that's been set. And there is a there is an opportunity to play flute different uh, somewhere down in the orchestra. And that's what private equity is, at least as I perceive it. There are other versions, you know, all, all great uh, endeavors come in different flavors. Um, people love to believe there's a cost stripping, asset stripping proposition. Conceptually, that simply doesn't work. Mm-hmm. If you buy a business with a cost option in it, yep. it's apparent to everybody who does diligence. Yeah, right. There's cost option here. So you price the option in. The interesting thing about pricing that option is everybody believes the cost opportunity is bigger than it is, and they believe it's easier to get out than it is. And so generally people pay too much for the cost option. They rip out the costs. They damage the business. And from the things we've been talking about, a business is a very, very sensitive human organism. They damage the business, perhaps with consulting support, Maybe the consultants have paid an incentive to take out more costs. Yeah, right. You run into a really interesting question then, which is, what's the relationship between the cost base and the revenue? Because if you can't tell me that, you can't tell me where the muscle is and where the fat is. You might damage me by accidentally amputating a leg. Mm. Um, and so there's a very delicate maneuver that happens. But the punchline on it is really interesting, which is you release cost. People knew that opportunity was there. It's less than they thought. It took longer. It's more difficult than they thought. And so the value of the company remains the same or goes down. What happens is profits go up and the valuation multiple goes down. So it simply doesn't make sense to pursue an alchemy of ripping out cost. It's it not actually sustainable. Uh, there are other variations. There's another variation, which is to capitalize property. Yes. Property yields are very low. Yep. And so something to be very wary of in private equity businesses is are people overcapitalizing the property and withdrawing a dividend, a super dividend, right. because they get a high multiple on that. So that would be a that would be an unhelpful thing for a private equity firm to do and wouldn't lead to sustainable outcomes. That should be punished at the point where they sell the business because people should be able to do the diligence and see. So again, it shouldn't be sustainable in an, in a perfect environment. So uh, my contention is no alchemy. It's an arbitrage on a conventional incentive system, uh, and that's why it works. Where do you see the trends going, Tim? Do you see public going to private? Um, There's been a lot of press about that, hasn't there? There's been a lot of discussion about how um, public companies uh, are not delivering on what people expect. At a micro level, you can begin to get agitated about that. Yes. Well, you know, it's a story of over-regulated boards and... uh, too much regulation, uh, poor incentives, um, slow-moving regulated. You, you can get very quickly into a place where that makes sense mm-hmm. in the democracy that we all live in, where we love to have emotional debate. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure the facts support it. Um, you know, you've had an, a stock market here in Australia today that's grown by 18% year-to-date. Yep. Um, you've had $30 billion worth of new activity each year for the last three years. An obvious trend there. Um, you've got enormous, enormous amounts of capital tied up in that market. 
substantially more than GDP. What mm-hmm. have we got a capital market of, I'm guessing, $2.8 trillion. Um, there's no obvious... There's no obvious move, secular move away from that to something different. There are such clear advantages to having organized capital markets that find their way to that. That's not to say there aren't opportunities at the margin and in certain situations to improve on that. But the joint stock company has been significantly the engine of growth in Western civilization. What's your thoughts on the likes of Blackstone? You know, they're aiming to what, raise one trillion uh, assets under management by 2026. So they're, they're, they're fairly bullish. Are things going more private? Um, one of, or, one of my or, principles, or, or, or I'm misinterpreting that. Um, one of my principles is never to comment. Okay. It's a re- legitimate question, but yeah. never to comment on much more capable people than we. Um, they've been awesome, and we we had the privilege of meeting early on uh, with Steve Schwartzman yep. when we were setting out on our journey, and uh, they've got an amazing business. Yes, um, it is a different business from the one that we have. Yeah, it take a long time to explain the differences. But um, it's a different business and it's in a diff- different market. But yeah, but amazing. the sentiment is not going to be rolled out to Australia in the sense that we, we, you don't anticipate more listed companies going private. Or well, I mean, we've we've done I think, um, and that the specific number doesn't matter. But I'm going to say seven public to privates, which is seven times more than the next competitor in the space. So yeah. we're we're fairly familiar with this dynamic. Yeah, um, it doesn't occur, generally speaking in your average common or garden public company. No. It occurs in public companies where there's been some sort of discontinuity which is best resolved by uh, by going private. And that discontinuity can be in the capital structure, it could be in the messaging between the market and the shareholders, uh, or the shareholders and management. It could be in a number, whole number of different areas. They're very complex ecosystems. But it's not. it's not as if the whole of uh, joint stock company land is creaking and needs to needs to change its spots. It's um it's more of an exception than a rule. So are you fairly bullish on the economy or where are you at? Well that's a macroeconomic question and my mm. my skills are definitely microeconomic. Um but let me let me chance my hand as everybody else does. We've had um twenty eight years of constant growth at three percent or thereabouts in this country. Half of that has been delivered by immigration growth. And half of that by an increase, obviously, in overall productivity. It's a really interesting question as to whether or not we measure productivity properly. I mean, GDP as an intellectual concept is is deeply fraught with difficulty. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was invented uh, pretty much hit its straps around wartime when we we're looking to maximize production of of uh, cheap battleships and tanks and and other things. And we've held on to it because it's a simple measure. And we have a lot of heartburn and concern about whether or not productivity is stalled and what that means for wages. I think there's a fairly powerful argument that productivity has grown more than we think. We're probably under measuring the actual growth in GDP. The simple example is if you're collecting data on mobile phones and the production of mobile phones, uh, I've got my mobile phone here. If you look at the last generation of mobile phone, and compare it with this generation of mobile phone, you'll see that's a widget. Widget before, widget after, mobile phone. It's now costing 110 cents in the dollar more than it used to. And so we've increased productivity by 10%. Yep. Increased productivity by 10%. No, not at all. We've increased productivity in this phone by 70% because the features that we're offering are the same price. Now, 
Um, there's some there's some attempt to address that issue, but there are no experts that I'm aware of that suggest for a minute that we properly capture the effect of that issue. If that's right, then what it means is we're overestimating inflation and we're underestimating absolute growth, which has profound implications for public policy. So there's some really interesting books around to be read on that. It's an important uh, concept to go back and look at. And I'm intrigued by those sorts of questions because as you, this whole interview has been yeah. about taking received conventional wisdom yeah. and quietly and humbly breaking it down and reflecting on whether or not that's actually the truth or sounds like the truth or is close to the truth. Because if it's not really the truth, then there's something much better that can be done. So what drives you to do PE? Um, is, it, is it the intellectual stimulation that I'm... I'm taking on something that someone mm. couldn't necessarily take to the best level. What What's the thrill out of it? Tim? Yeah. But obviously, you get excited about it. I do. I do. Still excited. Yeah. Um, as I sort of unpeel that onion, I guess the thing that thing that drives me first and foremost is working with teams of very capable people. I know that sounds corny, yep. but it ain't corny when you're there early in the morning and there late at night. If the speed at which people are thinking around you are reacting the complexity of the problems are such that they shouldn't be solvable or can only be solved by extraordinary effort and extraordinary people. And you see those problems being solved in front of your own eyes. Every day is a reinforcing and exciting venture. And there are bad days. There are days when things are going extremely badly and we haven't been without our challenges as a, as a firm. We've had two or three businesses out of the very many we've bought mm. where we've, I've lain awake at night and worried mm. and they're not comfortable. But even then you see the extraordinary performance of extraordinary people who go into the fire and bring back bring back the business. And in all of those years, uh, we've had extraordinary performance. And sometimes we've done our best work when, uh, when things weren't as we expected to define them. So that's exciting. What does the Tim Sims diary look like? It's pretty full. And does it start at crack of dawn in the morning, finish later on? Look, how, do you, how do you manage it, Tim? Yeah. Um, I'm acutely aware, I guess, of... Um, of the need to, because I've seen people going down around me, acutely aware of the need to, uh, to m- take care of self to a reasonable level. And so there's a lot of talk in our business about what's sustainable and what sustainable amounts of time working are and how they are. And uh, so for me, what that means is I'm very regular. I come to work as much as I can when I'm not traveling at the same time every day. I eat very similar things every day. Mm-hmm. I walk with my wife every day when I'm, when I'm not in town. Critical time of sharing and understanding and, and, and being real and being a normal person. Uh, I read something useful every day. Mm-hmm. And so I have a group of people who look after me and make that possible. And you know, literally it is, does that call need to be scheduled? Does that need to be a face-to-face meeting? How can that be? Um, which at one level is 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 challenging and sometimes dehumanizing mm-hmm. for those that are involved in that process, but means that I can do the things I love and keep doing things I love and minimize the cost to those around me because I'm highly predictable. You're also very strong in philanthropy. Yeah, I mean, the, the answer I'm going to give is a shy answer, but it's it's a fair challenge. My, my modus operandi, my ethos in life, my motivation in life is is, as a person of faith, is to... And at the heart of the faith question is, at least in the faith that I commit to, which is Christianity, is um, this lovely notion, amazing notion, is paradox, because it's full of paradoxes, to die to self, to die to self. If you think about a lot of the challenges that we have, 
as we go around as humanoids in our little community. It's the promotion of self as the most important element in any equation. It's a fundamentally destructive preset. Destructive? Destructive preset. In this conversation, I'm really important. Mm-hmm. I want to be really important for the sake of example. Mm-hmm. And I hog a microphone and I tell your listeners what a big guy I am and how important I am, how capable I am. If I've done that, I sincerely apologize. Right. But, but, but no, what empowers all of the people around us is to, be, is to be concerned about them. And so if you're really interested in making a difference, you, you quickly see that secret in life, which, is, which I'm sure I don't, I don't have or fully reflect, but I'm certainly aware of, which is that if you could find a way of behaving that would galvanize 100 people around you to behave well, or 1,000 or 10,000, then you can make a difference. If the way you behave generates cash and surplus, which can add to that lethal cocktail or powerful cocktail of, of motivation and purpose, and if you strip my business down to its, to its most elemental pieces, yep. what I'm in the business, or have been found myself in the business of doing is finding extraordinary people, finding a mission, realizing that we don't know enough to accomplish the mission, so we're going to have to really think hard and carefully and and approach it with humility. But then intrinsically between us, if we're bonded in the right way and we reflect hard enough and we're persistent enough, we can solve that problem as well as anybody has ever solved it before or as well as we're going to solve it and that's going to be fun. And so when you take that ethos and you move it across into a philanthropic environment, which has its own challenges, what it means is you find something that really strikes your heart as being something you don't want to see continue and you have the hubris to believe that maybe in some small way you could stop that happening domestic violence uh homelessness uh slavery yeah whatever it happens to be something that really gets to you mm. um and what you then do is you say well is there a way to impact that who are the players what's happening is there an organized way to come in and galvanize a better outcome here can i find an extraordinary team Always start with the CEO. And again, back to your trade, Greg, and you're the master of your trade. Can we go back there? Find the right CEO and back them with resources, give them responsibility, give them a budget, and say, impact that issue and take as little of my time as you need. Which means you need to tell me how much of my time you need. You need to be ruthless about that. Hold me to it. What you've asked me for, I need to deliver. Don't be rude, but be forceful. When you need me to make a phone call, Insist on it, because otherwise the system's not working, and we'll go solve that issue. And we've seen extraordinary, extraordinary progress in solving some really exciting things by using that model, which is the repurposed consulting model. It's a repurposed private equity model. In fact, I go so far as to say it's probably at the heart of most human endeavor, which is organizing a team around a target, yes, creating permission to take risk, so there's another really interesting thing we didn't touch on, which is in the private equity business, yep. when we make an investment decision, yes. we all agree. If one person vetoes it, we don't go ahead. Is that right? Yeah. If it goes wrong, we're all responsible. There's no fault. Because we that's a very moment when you need maximum immunity. We're not looking for someone to, to throw out and blame. We got a problem. And we need to solve the problem. And one of the really vital aspects of a CEO is um, which I found out long after consulting was it's a person who's prepared to take hard decisions after taking good counsel and information 
and prepared to be wrong. And when they're wrong, and they need to be decisions which don't wholly below the waterline. Yeah. But but when they're wrong, they're prepared to reverse that decision. Something magical happens to an organization when you do that, which is the entire organization is empowered to make mistakes and recover from them and own up to them. So you don't get compliance issues, by and large, or you reduce the possibility of compliance issues. You get everybody acting and thinking more like an owner. Yeah. You get a tremendous sense of energy and excitement because we're not afraid of failure. We're afraid of not trying. We're afraid of not fulfilling the possibility that's that's inherent in our teaming. And uh, so those are the CEOs that we absolutely find galvanize companies and drive them to enormous success. What's the toughest call you made, Tim? Well, one was referred to earlier, which was which was leaving the consulting firm that I had helped to build. Um and I, you know, in retrospect, I probably for them and for me, I did the right thing. Um, there are other tough calls where you, you don't always find the courage to do absolutely the right thing in retrospect. You know, there have been some, some challenge situations we've been involved in where I've gone back and we've looked at how we behave towards each other and what we did in the midst of that stress and pressure yeah. where the best you can do is give yourself a seven out of 10. It's not a nine. It found our weakness. It found out you know, that little gremlin of self-interest and it's not me, it's not my fault. Some, somebody's done this to me, still alive, and it's dangerous. And do you think PE gets a, uh, a negative rap? Yeah, well, it, but, but for good reason, right? It's, it's, it's an alchemy. It's a strange, it looks like a strange alchemy. People are waiting to, to pounce on broken PE outcomes. Yeah. The statistics don't support that, by the way. The number of IPOs from PE that have succeeded and gone on to grow are better than other sources. You know, number of PE companies that succeed better than other sources. You know, almost every rumor about private equity proves to be an unsupported rumor, negative rumor, unsupported by the data. But I don't think that will change. And I don't think the industry's necessarily done a great job in explaining itself either. You know, they're, they're deal guys, yeah. head down, tail up, um, often not particularly charming, as, you, as you'll see from this interview. <laughs> You're just so blurted out. That's not always good for PR. No. What what does you're highly into your analysis? So what does the analysis say to you about corporate Australia board structures with what were you saying earlier? Thirty percent impact. Yeah, so so boards. That's what, that's enormous. Well we can see if we take um, a massive statistical machine, which I'm learning to work with and enjoy the power of, but just one application, we take a massive statistical machine and ask it to vary the contents and presence and configuration of different boards randomly and test over long periods of time the impact on the company's performance. And it's 30%. So 30% variation in performance uh, is, uh, is created by um, the configuration of the board. So they're very important people. And each individual one of them is carefully and well hand-picked yes. for a purpose. But there's a, there's a, a meta wisdom there, which is how do we how do we get the best out of those valuable resources? Uh, and the current incentive systems quite frustrating for some of them. And you know, I got to talk as you do, as you do every day. Yeah, 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 absolutely. To see how um, how frustrating that can be, which isn't throw out the baby with the bathwater and you know start again with a new system, but powerful incremental change where we move to towards a new and better model surely must be called for. So if I'm a chief exec, Tim, and you come knocking at my door, 
Mm-hmm. Why should I be happy? Depends why I've come to see you. Uh, you should be happy in principle. Um, I might have come to see you to persuade you to sign up for workplace giving. Only a small percentage of Australian companies do that. It's an incredible product. If you sign up for workplace giving, the statistics would suggest, if you administer it well, you halve the turnover in your employees. Average Australian company is 16%, falls to 8 The profit impact of going from 16% to 8% in turnover employees is for most businesses, it varies by business, to double your profits. So here is a way in which you can have a happy workforce and double your profits. That might embarrass your bonus claims, but your profits will double. Uh, To do that, you simply need to inform your payroll department that they need to adjust the way in which they manage the payroll. Would you like to do that? Now, Bill Bain used to say there are only two kinds of meeting, gain share and lose share. I would suggest that's a happy gain share meeting, perhaps until you meet the gatekeeper who's responsible for the current performance in that area, yeah. and then you run into the incentive system and, and those things. But that's a happy meeting with the chief executive. If I go to a chief executive and say, I've got a unique experiment which will take slavery out of your supply chain, yep. not Google for slavery, find the slaves and repurpose the slave factory so that there are not slaves there, there are properly paid people with schools and hospitals to support them. I can do that for you in your supply chain. The chief executive might, part of the chief executive would be saying, well, that's terrific, I'd love to do that. Another part would be saying, well, I don't really want to look to see if there's a problem like that in my supply chain. In other words, if I find it, it could be very bad for my performance review. Yes, right. So then I would go on to say to that chief executive, well, you can get a 16% price premium for your product if you can prove it's slave-free. It'll take 10 nanoseconds after the law's passed to see there are lots of claims, but very few proofs in that space. So you can get a 16% price premium if you really are clean, and you can get an 82% purchase preference if you really are clean. This is a lethal weapon. So it's one of those wonderful synthesis where you do good for society and you generate enormous value. Don't we love to find those? So if you were a chief executive, you might have a mixed meeting with me on that. It's like sort of, I wish this guy would go away and stop talking about slaves. I, you know, I don't want to know about slaves. But it might end happily. And you might say, well, that's worth pursuing. Just to take two examples. There might be another one where I come to see you and say, I think the market misunderstands your company. You're trading at a price which you can far exceed. And they misunderstand your company. I'd love to bid for your company at a price which is significant premium to your current share price. And having bid for your company, the market will be forced to consider whether or not I'm trying to steal the company or paying a full price. And you will force a degree of efficiency on the market. So how can that be bad? Why don't we think about doing that? Or there's a division in your company which is confusing to the strategy, which we can do a leverage joint venture with, which we can force the market to accept that that is a much higher value than they're currently seeing. We can improve the performance of that company and we can still give you an option to buy it back at the end. That's probably a happy meeting. Mm. So there are a range of different meetings that, that one can have. Fortunately, after 40 years in and around this market, we know many of them already and uh, you know, try not to waste their time. Any uh, pearls of advice or wisdom you'd give to the, uh, the aspiring executives in the Australian market? It's difficult, isn't it? Because um, I can sit here in front of a microphone and the benefit of hindsight make things seem simple. The true life experience is that you're in a, 
you're, you're an aspiring executive, you're in a structure which has got expectations, um, uh, constraints, incentives, which are not always the expectations, constraints and incentives that you would think best deliver the job. So the dead hand of culture and expectation and incentive is working its way toward 3%. Yeah, right. Um, and so you've, you've got to navigate that. There's no point being an evangelist and jumping up and saying, this is all wrong. You know, give us a new system because you'd probably be the next choice to leave. And you bounce into another company where you try the same experiment, then you'll be a serial, serial lever. Um, so that that's a really, really hard thing. I've had the privilege of effectively working with a very high degree of autonomy since I was 25. Yeah. And so, and, and, and I'm still alive and punching. Yeah. Um, so I've had two great blessings, right? Working for self and experimenting with things that have worked out. Um, so it would be easy for me to sit here and say, uh, j- just, just do that. But, you know, would I want to try to apply for Oxford again and get in? I, I don't know. Don't think I want to take that test again. You might find me out second time around. Did you ever have much self-doubt, Tim? Um, uh, self-doubt means different things to different people. What I've learned, um, what I've learned, here's a little experiment that your listeners could try okay. and have a little giggle when they, when they try it, which is, um, which direction is the future, Greg? Point in the direction of the future. Listeners should be pointing in the direction of the future. Would you like to point in the direction of the future? Yeah, it's interesting. And where, which direction is the past? Which direction is the past? Which direction are you going to point in? Always point down normally. Yeah. Or behind, right? Yeah, so the conventional response to that is to point in front, front of the future and back to the Those people are golden and wonderful to society. They're through time people. They're sequential people. You and me point in the same directions. So I'm, ex- I'm excited intrigued by you your response. You believe in your own future, don't you, to make the future? Um, well, I don't believe in your own future. Again, that's that's loaded with all sorts of assumptions. And, right. and um, But I, uh, I think um, what I would express is that um, there's a great privilege if you don't dwell too much on the past. The metaphor here is hurdling. I was a not a very good hurdler when I was a young kid, but good enough to think I was good. And you're running across hurdles. The thing about hurdles is if you kick one over and you and you get concerned about the hurdle you kicked, you will kick the next hurdle. Yeah, very true. And you'll end up in a mess of hurdles lying on the ground. <laughs> you won't complete. That's right. So there's a sense in which business forces hurdling on you, which is you need to make that micro-adjustment as you clear the hurdle. You need to go a little higher, a little faster, with a little better rhythm onto the next hurdle. But if you stop to think about the last hurdle, you simply cannot find the nervous energy in the thought process at the time of the race to clear it, clear the next hurdle. And so there's a real sense in which I think it ought to be true, and I, I won't make that claim for myself, that those that notice mistake, improve it in real time and keep thrusting forward while the game is on and then have the maturity to go back afterwards and objectively review what happened, preferably on a team basis, ought over time to have an advantage. See, it goes, it's the paradox. It goes against all our natural, you know, if I was to do a bad thing and um, strike you, you would recoil and go tense and wait for the next blow. Mm. It turns out in a human organization, a degree of that's helpful, but the opposite is more helpful. 
which is to lean into the punch, watch for the punch, see where the next punch is coming from. Bad example, I know, but it's mm. a real simple example yep. um, of how to deal with stress and pressure. So our natural reaction is to tighten up and to go into self-absorbed, self-destructive thinking processes driven by our sense of what other people around us are thinking or we're thinking about ourselves. That is healthy at some point, but in the middle of it, uh, it needs to be shut down. And that's probably, you know, getting towards the end of our time together, mm. that's probably the five-year-old in boarding school guy. You know, there's just nowhere to go. It's dark. It's cold. It gets dark at four o'clock. doesn't get a light till 10. Yep. Your mother is on the other side of the planet. Yes. There's no one to talk to. There's no one interested in what your last challenge was. They are interested in what you can do tomorrow and uh, when not, you can make them laugh or you can uh, you can get on and play a better game of rugby. Yep. And so they're, they're, there's probably a conditioning that's probably not altogether healthy. Yep. But it, having been through a version of that and then seen other less maladjusted people at work, I can see that there's advantages and disadvantages to the way in which you deal with failure, timeframes, and what it means to you to fail. Back to our chief executives, right? Yep. Uh, don't dismiss failure, but don't let failure break you to the point where you give up taking risk, because risk is essential to moving forward and finding a new paradigm. Otherwise, we're just circling in each other's exhaust fumes. And that's not healthy, right? Carbon mm. monoxide. Lethal. Well, Tim, I can't ask for any more than that today. It's been uh, a fantastic discussion. Thanks for the privilege and opportunity. And I've said it a couple of times, probably sounds cheesy, but I don't do these things very often. And one of the reasons I'm doing this today is because of my respect for you and your business. Um, and, you know, we, we do look for elite businesses as we, as we travel. And you're an elite person running an elite business that tells the truth in a very hard space. And it's an essential ingredient of good business practice. And so head off to you. And that's why I'm here. Thanks very much, Tim. Thanks. You've been listening to No Limitations. No Limitations.